Hello everyone, welcome to this discussion hosted by InnovationOz.com and Verizon. Today we're coming to you from two studios, one in Singapore and one in Sydney, where we'll be talking about ESG and the way that we credential and understand ESG across the region and in our companies and organisations across Asia Pacific. In the studio here in Sydney, we have Andy Lamrock, who's the Head of Global Services for Verizon. Welcome, Andy. Thanks, Corey. Great to be here. Priya Dev, you are a lecturer at the ANU School of Business. You're also the Chief Innovation Officer at ESG Tech. Welcome. Thanks, Corey. Now, across in Singapore, we also have our panel, Rob LaBusque. You're the Regional Vice President of Asia Pacific for Verizon Business. Welcome to you. Thanks, Kari. Naomi Vowles, you're the director and co-founder of Giveable. Welcome. Thank you, Kari. And Grace Sai, CEO and co-founder of Unravel Carbon. Welcome to the Singapore panel as well. Thanks for having us. So we brought this panel together in two cities because really looking at the way that the region works together as the largest organisations and businesses really understand ESG and what it means to them and what it means for broader business, collaborations, supply chains. So to kick off with your regional view, Rob, can you talk us through what you can see in terms of where the mature parts are, whether we probably need to put a little bit more of attention? What are you seeing regionally? Thanks, Corey. And I have to say, it's great to be here today with such an esteemed panel speaking on such an important topic. Undoubtedly, in the Asia-Pacific region, we know that the biggest challenge of this decade and the next decade is striking a balance between economic prosperity and the needs of society as a whole. And it is emerging that ESG as a strategy and as a corporate step forward is providing a key role in the execution of that task. We know two things in the Asia-Pacific region for sure. Firstly, we know that the region is characterised by being very rapid to adapt, change, and in some cases, reinvent itself, either at a country level or a regional level, based on changing market conditions. We know also, secondarily, that solving an ESG challenge just within the borders of a country won't actually solve it for a corporation. The integrated nature of supply chains and value chains within the Asia-Pacific region and around the world mean that solving this as a region is as critical as it is solving it for just a corporation or just a company. I think this is a good place to bring in Priya. Dev, Priya, you do a lot of work in Australia and also across in the wider region. When we talk about ESG, there has been a little bit of grey area about how companies are understanding it and measuring it and reporting it, both to internal stakeholders, external stakeholders. When we talk about the technologies that are emerging that can help really define and measure some of these externalities, if you will, what are we talking about here? How's technology playing a role now? Yeah, so it's important to distinguish between the technology and the methods of measurement to measure these abstract ESG concepts. So the problem that we're trying to solve in the marketplace as a whole is that we're trying to bring ESG disclosures, which are also called non-financial disclosures, up to the same kind of level of financial disclosures so that we have complete transparency in the marketplace so that all the stakeholders in the capital markets can assess an enterprise for its enterprise value. I think that's really interesting. And when you say that, it reminds me of like intangible assets. Like we now see intangible assets included on, you know, company ASX reports, et cetera. It's now something that has value. Grace, can I bring you in here? So we're talking about the E in ESG. Your company really helps, I guess, understand and measure 
the carbon component. Can you talk us through how that works? Yeah, sure. So we're an enterprise software that helps companies track and reduce their carbon emissions, focusing on Asia Pacific and specializing in scope three, which is very much the holy grail of GHG emissions. And Asia Pacific is responsible for 60% of global emissions and we house 70% of global supply chains. So there is a lot of opportunity, but also responsibility on our region to do something that the world has never seen before. So we help companies by converting their accounting data into full supply chain carbon disclosure data, which is auditable and which is actionable. And we're seeing a lot of now focus, right? I think in the past decade, it's always been in scope one and two. And now the attention has turned to scope three, which is kind of a funny one because it's like, Scope 3 is not your fault, but it's kind of your problem. And it is really an opportunity for companies across borders, like to Rob's point, to kind of take on this collective action and bend the curve on the emissions that are coming from the supply chains in Asia Pacific. Just for those that might not be familiar with Scope 3, myself included, can you talk us through Scope 3 and what that means? Sure. So scope three basically usually constitutes about 90% of a company's total emissions. It's all the indirect emissions outside of purchase electricity. So all the downstream, upstream transportation and logistics, business travel, employee commute, investments, all these are within a company's scope three. That sounds like a very natural place to bring you in, Naomi. Part of addressing scope three, it sounds like, is choosing and making choices about who you partner with, how you partner, what that broader ecosystem looks like. That's where your expertise lie. Can you just expand a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So our company, Giveable, specialises in supplier sustainability data and we cover the full range of ESG. So obviously environmental, but also social and governance. And what we do is we screen supplier pools anywhere from 100 up to you know thousands of suppliers to help businesses understand the sustainability profile of their partners, of their suppliers, even of their customers. And the reason we do this particularly is because businesses are setting targets. Obviously, you know, net zero targets are very well understood, but they're also, you know, zero waste to landfill, other environmental targets. But looking at social diversity, equity, inclusion, ethical sourcing that come under the S and the G, businesses are also making targets around them. So social procurement, you know, purchasing from women-led businesses, disability enterprises, making sure that there's no modern slavery in their supply chain, which is very important for Australian businesses where there's legislation. Businesses are now really taking care and interest in who their partners are and how they align with their targets. So following on from Grace, if your company has set a net zero target, which includes scope three, it is imperative to know who your suppliers are and how they will help you achieve those targets. The S and the G part, I think where we started the panel by talking a little bit about the environmental part, but a good place to bring you in, Andy, we've talked in a little bit the lead up to this panel about how organisations look internally and think about the social and governance. And then following up from what Naomi said, it's one thing to understand your own profile, but then also the profile of the organisations you're partnering with. So from where you're standing or sitting in this case, what are the sorts of things that companies need to be thinking about and understanding about themselves that might inform the way that they think about exactly what Naomi's talking about in terms of how they partner. Yeah, well, the S is social. So we're humans. So we need to interact and we need to communicate and we need to be able to create platforms to draw out on humans' ability to 
we live on meaningful purpose. We feel good when we can do something great for our environment, our community, our society. And so you're starting to see lots of programs in the S space, if you like, where volunteerism is such a big thing in organisations now. And the, the ability to have a platform to empower your employees to discover volunteerism, to be able to attach to something that's really important to them within the community or society or anything that really they're intrigued or interested in. At Verizon, for example, we've got a commitment to 2.5 million hours of volunteer hours across the globe, across our 135,000 staff. And it started a few years ago, and we're going well, but it started a few years ago and it took a little bit of momentum. And now there's just so many opportunities for us to volunteer, to feel good about coming to work, creating that best friend at work by doing meaningful things. So I think the S is really, really important because that really drives that diversity, that inclusion that we talk about, the equity, we talk about community. I think one of the things that really stands out is organisations need to also recognise that there are many voices. And so when you can create a chorus through groups, at Verizon we have, I think, 10 people choruses, if you like, where it could be disability, it could be veterans, it could be Indigenous folk, etc., all come together, have a voice, and allows us to be a lot more focused and empowered with what we're doing. I think when we started this panel, we were talking about technology and measurement and credentials. And as we've moved through the ESG and introducing our panelists, we're now in a place where we're talking about deeply social and connective tissue. And I'm throwing this out to the whole panel. Makes it probably quite difficult for organisations to wrap their head around why they're moving through ESG. Is it about good business? Is it about attracting skills? Is it about the expectation of stakeholders and customers. I don't know if anyone wants to answer this, but what are you hearing about? What are the drivers to really make sure that organisations are doing a good job at this? Well, Corey, firstly, it starts, it's all of those things. And it starts with an understanding and a very clear focus on who the stakeholders are that you serve as an organisation. So for us at Verizon, it's very clear. It's our shareholders, our customers, our employees and society. And importantly, they are all equal. They are all equal stakeholders in the way that we serve and seek to show up as an organisation. Once you have that clarity, we absolutely believe that technology will play a pivotal role in how we solve these issues this decade and the next. There's no doubt about it, both as an enabler, and we have great examples of technology platforms that are enabling steps forward in ESG for organisations here today, but also fundamentally looking at how we've architected technology and built it in the past and what it should look like in the future. I'll give you a quick example. Just by migrating our broadband services from old copper networks to new fiber optic networks, we get a more than 100 times better power consumption from those fiber optic networks than we did from the old copper networks. That strategy in and of itself creates a significant step forward in environmental and sustainability goals. So it's looking at how we can transform technology, but also use technology to transform. Yeah, Corey, and, and if I may add on the employee stakeholder um, component, what we have been seeing is that we literally have the best talents in AI, in data engineering, and software engineering approach us as cult leads wanting to join Unravel because of the mission we're on. 
you know, how much of uh, recruitment costs we save from, <laughs> from having this pull from the purpose. And I think, you know, jokes aside, what is really interesting about this is there has been an awakening and a realization that this responsibility towards our planet is not the responsibility of governments and NGOs alone, right? It is of the private sector. And more than that, it is of ordinary citizens who are now stepping up, who want to apply their AI talent and their software engineering talent to build technologies that the world has not seen before to attack a very old and stubborn problem. So I think that's something really beautiful, something really exciting. That Definitely the, the generation of talent that we're seeing are very, very attracted to. So it's no longer just capitalism for maximizing shareholders' value sake anymore. And also sustainability, like what is sustainability? Sustainability, a sustainable business is one that provides value to stakeholders and to people in the planet now without detracting from the value that it can provide to people in the planet down the track. And what we're finding actually is that businesses die faster these days than they did 100 years ago. So if we want to build a sustainable business, a business is going to be hang around 10 years from now, and we have to look at ESG risk management. We have to take it seriously. Just following on from what Grace was saying about, you know, new technologies really addressing stubborn problems. What are you seeing in your work? Yeah, so there's a lot of technology that's reducing reliance on resources, like reliance on fossil fuels, there's that side of things. And then there's technology that can be used to reduce the reporting burden on disclosing entities. So the SEC, for example, they estimate in a policy paper that it costs large companies like Verizon about $200,000 to $500,000 a year to create non-financial disclosures. And so the work that I'm doing with ESG Tech is really to reduce that reporting burden from $200,000 to $500,000 down to like $2,000 or $20,000 so it becomes more accessible to small to medium enterprises. And there's been a lot of coverage about the way in which over the last, say, five years, the organisations have been reporting some of these ESG measurement, which is really about media sentiment as opposed to actually measuring things that impact. Would you agree that that's the case in Australia? And also, I'm keen for the Singapore panel to weigh in on that one. I think every company or every person, for that matter, starts from somewhere. While, you know, for the past decade, there has been a lot of criticism on greenwashing and um, the real intent of corporates being part of this I think as long as there's real action and there's progress towards improvement within those entities, we need it all, you know. It's clear, Corey, that there are two clear pressure points when it comes to this. The first is the increase in expectations on companies from society as a whole, from their consumers, and more so today than ever before from their own employees or prospective employees. The second is that we've seen a rapid acceleration in reporting cycles, the hype cycles of the news media and the rise of citizen journalism. And so what that really means is that creates a pressure point for organisations where if they're not standing behind these objectives or these disclosures and they're not doing as they say in some respects, the opportunity for them to be found out increases exponentially. And so we know that organisations need to look at this, not just from a compliance perspective, but in true delivery and true outcomes as well, so that they can stand behind the promises that they've made. I think between your point and Grace's point, you've got to start somewhere 
and you've got to be intentionally moving down, you know, through a process. And and Rob, to your point, this is a, an absolute expectation of customers and employees. So people need to be on the journey. I might just quickly come to you, Naomi. Tell me, what are the really smart companies doing? Like in terms of the conversations you have, how are they taking all of this information and what are the three most important things that they're doing to make sure that they're moving through this process quickly and effectively? Sure. I think the first thing is there is a mandate from the top. So probably in the past year, year and a half, we were dealing with um, different business units, but there wasn't that urgency. Now we're seeing the mandate coming from CFOs for non-financial reporting and also CEOs where they're pushing their business units, whether it's a sustainability unit, procurement, marketing, all through the organization to really think about embed ESG or sustainability into the decisions that they make. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we're seeing the smarter companies get in front of this. So when we're looking at supply chains and partners, they're actually screening them before they even bring them into the company. Whereas, you know, up until now, it's sort of been a little bit more reactive where they've brought those companies on and now they're looking at their sustainability profile and deciding whether or not they're the right partners for them. The smarter ones are getting ahead of that. And then I think thirdly, the smart companies are also attracting the talent that is driving this from the bottom up. So as Grace mentioned earlier, there is a generation of engineers, marketers, designers, people across the board of an organization who really want to make a difference and an impact. And it's companies that can demonstrate their commitment to that, that are able to attract that top talent. I think that's fascinating. The S, again, the S is driving the the E and the G. It's such an important, important piece. And looking globally, that sort of skills environment over the past two years has been a real roller coaster. And these companies, just to Naomi's point, they're the ones that are going to you know, win that skills battle. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're actually seeing that North Star that the UN created with the 17 development goals for the world to achieve by 2030. If you look at them, they're very socially based. Obviously, climate change is in there as well. But that North Star has now resonated and it's landed in our society. It's across the, the universe in our population. And so you're now seeing forward-thinking companies Look at the job descriptions of today. They've completely changed. We talk about meaningful purpose in the first paragraph, not the bottom. And I think they're really good signs that there are organisations who take this very seriously and they're looking to bring diversity of community into their businesses to ensure that they've got diversity of thought to solve the riddles of tomorrow. It's a difficult task. And a question for the whole panel. Are we seeing key industries sort of understanding and I guess, embedding ESG practices earlier than others. Are there sort of bright spots in terms of industry? I know, obviously, Australia's got a significant resources sector that's really had to confront some of these challenges very early. You know, across the region, there'll be different kind of areas of maturity when it comes to the organisations. Are you seeing any themes? Corey, it speaks to me about the maturity and the efficacy of board-level decision-making and strategy setting. So, as Naomi just referenced a moment ago, the best companies are getting ahead of this issue and they're proactively planning and thinking about the strategies and the operational impacts of their ESG application as they go forward, not just for the next quarter or the next reporting period, but for the next three, five, 10 years. We've learnt lessons in both cybersecurity and digital transformation that tell us that the organisations that are the very best are the ones that pre-plan, that are on the front foot, that already have strategies in place. In some cases, they're battle-tested as well and they're able to accelerate and move forward with those. 
For cybersecurity, it's that classic case of a board accepting that it's not if, but when a breach occurs, how well have they road tested their response plans, how prepared are they as an organization. And COVID taught us that in digital transformation, if you didn't have a plan back in February of 2020, then you are well behind the eight ball when it came to transforming your business to a digital first interaction so that you could continue to serve your customers and your stakeholders. So I think the lesson at its core is the same across those three parameters. Feels to me like ESG from a strategy perspective is one that needs to be elevated up and it needs to be far more proactively battle tested and put forward as a board strategy. Going back to something we touched on very briefly, modern slavery has obviously been something that has made Australian boards sit up and go, oh, wow, we really need to understand exactly how our organisations are operating and how long those supply chains are. Before supply chain vulnerability became a COVID issue, it was really about understanding them from a modern slavery perspective. All the things we've talked about today this far have really pointed to the reputation, the skills attraction, the future-proofing your business. Is there a role for legislation here or this is just good business? I think it's both. I think in some cases that regulation is needed to give that initial push. So, for example, in Australia with the Modern Slavery Act, we work with a lot of companies that are looking at their supply chain and understanding the modern slavery risks. But what it has done is it's also prompted them to think about other risks that they might have in their supply chain that aren't related to modern slavery, that may be environmental social diversity, other governance risks. So even though that came from regulation, it started a conversation that goes way beyond that into the other ESG topics. Here in Asia and Singapore, the government has pushed the Singapore Green Plan, which has prompted people, prompted citizens, prompted corporates, prompted local governments to really start thinking about what they can do. In India, there is legislation there that's requiring companies to look at how they're supporting minority groups. And again, that's started from regulation, but in the conversations we have, it's now starting to be ingrained and people are proactively looking for ways to bring that in. And it's not just because it's regulation, it's because they've realised that it's good business. Priya, can I ask you, you talked about reporting before and making that reporting accessible, particularly to smaller organisations. How much of that is essential for those smaller organisations to play a more meaningful role in partnering with larger organisations that are setting the bar really high? Is that a business enabler in that sense? Yeah, just if I could also tag on from the previous question as well, I think regulation is playing a very important role in creating standardised reports or creating structure around how a company should report. I think there's two pressure points, not dissimilar to what Rob was talking about before. The way I see the two pressure points is a top-down pressure point coming from regulators in terms of enforcing what sort of disclosures a corporation needs to make in its non-financial reports. And then there's a bottom-up pressure, which is coming from all of the stakeholders. So investors, lenders, employees, and consumers and and uh, suppliers in a supply chain as well. So I think with both the top-down and the bottom-up pressure, these both pressure points are a sort of creating pressure on companies of all sizes, even small sizes, to produce transparent non-financial reporting. It sounds a little bit like cyber in the way of like, if you wanted to be partnering with a larger organisation, you needed that hygiene. And those companies that really understand that the forward planning doesn't have to be those large businesses looking at potential turmoil. It's those small businesses that are wanting to up the ante and really be really, truly competitive. Andy, 
the skills piece, going back to that, but people, and you talked about diversity of thought and that inclusion piece, we have a genuine challenge with skills, particularly in Australia, particularly technology skills. I know it's probably similar across the world, but Australia, it's really profound. Like in terms of the good business of the S, that's having a real impact on the way people are looking at the talent pool as a whole. Yeah. And it might also go to the point where we need to start to make sure that we've got inclusion across all of society. As we become a digital verse, we have an opportunity to never leave anyone behind for the first time probably in, in the history of mankind. And so organisations can give laptops and they can provide connectivity. Obviously, from the Verizon perspective, we're very engaged in, in those sorts of programs. But anybody can do anything to ensure that inclusion happens. And so I think that's a starting point, making sure that we do have the digital skills to be able to live in the digital universe that is really evolving. I mean, evolution is in motion and you can see it happening. And so things move and change quite quickly. So programs that organisations put in place to make sure people aren't left behind, I think is really important. I mean, we've seen some of the great industries, you know, put up satellites to provide free internet to third world countries and things like that. These are things we have to do. This is how we actually build the skills of tomorrow. Grace, I just want to come to you. Again, we talked a little bit about what good companies are doing. You obviously have a lot of customers. What is the profile of the way that they're talking to you about what it is they're measuring and how they're going about it? And interestingly, do the technology layer within an organisation, when you're talking about an enterprise platform, do they understand that they are part of these discussions? We have seen that the C-level, the CIO, the CFO we've mentioned, but when you get down to that technology layer, they're like, is that, my, is that part of my role? Love your thoughts on that. Yeah, for sure. I think in general, you know, building on Priya's point as well, we are seeing our clients and leads fall into two buckets in general. One is acting based out of um, regulatory pressure and another is out of voluntary pressure. We actually right now have more companies in the second bucket, which is more fun to work with. But in general, we are serving public listed companies. We are serving private companies. We are serving large multinationals across 17 countries, but also regional leaders and national leaders as well. We definitely interact with CEOs, COOs, CSOs, Chief Sustainability Officers. But because of the nature of our software, we interact a lot with CTOs as well and the data team. And, you know, our mission is really to make decarbonization painless. The current status quo requires six to nine months of manual data collection work and process because it's done manually. And this doesn't make sense. We need to totally switch around the effort impact ratio and make the data collection and reporting part super easy, super fun, and then give back the rest of the time to organizations to actually decarbonize. So that's really our thesis here. And for small companies to work with us, all we need is like one Excel file or one CSV file with the transactions of the entire year. And in seconds, literally seconds, our engine will pump out the full carbon data in a personalized dashboard. And for the larger companies, the product is sexy to use. You know, that's our intention to make this a very user-friendly, very sexy product. And it is a multi-stakeholder platform, you know, so it's not just the sustainability team who have accounts on this decarbonization platform. It's also the finance team. They can do what-if scenarios. They can discuss budget versus impact. It's also for the data team, you know, data owners across the world can basically feel empowered that their everyday work and the cleanliness of their data will really contribute and roll up 
to the headquarters needs and requirements to to see their full um, supply chain. And it's been really fascinating. I think um, we're just seven months in, but the kind of clients that we're talking to, they're huge, they're public listed, they're across the globe. And we're just very humbled to be in this position to introduce a new form of technology to solve this problem. Corey, it strikes me listening to Grace speak there, something that we haven't really touched on, although we've touched on it in the wrong way, and that's the concept of time. In the opening, I talked about this decade and next decade, but what a great example of the power of technology taking something from a year to minutes. You know, timing uh, needs to be compressed significantly in the way that organisations work to solve these challenges. And why is that? Well, there's a lot of benefits to that, but we know, what do we know? We know that the court of public opinion is swift and sure. And there's an emphasis on the first one, SWIFT, when it comes to judging an organisation's efficacy and its ability to deliver. So those tools helping organisations to not just accelerate, but a quantum leap forward in their ability to execute is critical to them being able to fast forward, solve these issues sooner, but also make sure that they build a protective layer around their reputational stance in the marketplace. 100%. Pri, I'm looking at you. This will all sound very familiar in terms of the time cutting, the cost cutting to get to the heart of the challenge and address it meaningfully. That's what you're seeing? Yeah, exactly. A lot of the customers that we're talking to, of course, they just want to reduce the reporting burden, but also the regulators as well. I mean, they're asking for technologists to be coming up with solutions that are going to reduce the reporting burden so that they can start to mandate some more strict guidelines on what kind of information is disclosed and data is disclosed via non-financial reports. So I'm going to end on a point that probably brings together a couple of things. When things move quickly, often there is a grey space with which people go, I don't know if we've got the internal skills to meet this challenge ourselves. Like who would we look to to help us guide? We've talked about, Grace, the point you just made about people in the data being really proud of the role they play and rolling up information to decision makers. And we talk about the essence of the S in ESG and that it really is about a company. So how do we make sure that organisations, and I'll ask all of you this as we draw it to a close, really grab the opportunity to make these decisions on how to bring the organisation and its people along for the journey without outsourcing it? Because you lose the magic, I think, in many yeah. cases. Would that be something, Andy, you'd agree with? Yeah, I like the word there, magic. And um, you've got to look east, west, north, south. It's, um, ESG's a team sport. Every single executive that I have the privilege of talking to, it's in their top three. And so it's on everyone's lips, it's on everyone's mind. But getting back to that magic, being able to harness the people in your organisation to drive towards these really audacious goals and giving them a platform to do that, that's such a great step. Uh, I think it's fantastic that we have technology that gets us closer every single day, innovation, and this great group of people in their companies and what they're doing to create visibility to allow us to report. I mean, Priya, we can report quickly, then we've got all this time to act. As Rob said, you know, all of a sudden we get this time back to do something. So magic was a good word, Corey. Any, any thoughts from Singapore? Absolutely. I think actually giving businesses the data that they need to be actionable. So, you know, what Unravel's doing, what Giveable's doing is providing businesses with the information they need to take action, to, to take ownership of it and say, hey, look, we're getting in front of this. We're doing something. So I think that's a really important part of, of this whole process is drawing on the technology that's available, the data that's available that you may need to rely on some 
outside organizations to provide that with you, but it gives the organization the power to take the action and go forward. Corey, it's not such a case of don't outsource it because it's a challenge and the old school thinking might be that you outsource a problem, but it takes a village. You know, for an organization to solve this, it takes input from an ecosystem of like-minded partners, suppliers, in some cases, customers and other stakeholder groups as well. And a critical learning, I think, for organizations as they look forward into the future about how they execute is an acceptance and an understanding that they need to open the aperture on thinking about who it is that they bring to the table to help them to collaborate to solve these issues. I think that's a brilliant place to leave today's discussion. Thank you, everyone. Today's been a fantastic event. It's always a little bit of a high-wire act when you have two different cities via this panel. I think it was really important to do it this way. I think from a regional perspective, brokering these conversations in this way is is really valuable. Rob LaBusk, thank you so much. Naomi Vowles, uh, Grace Sai, And in Sydney, we have Andy Lamrock and Priya Dev. Thank you to everyone for joining us today. <laughs>